0: Hello there. Thank you for welcoming me into your eardrums. I'm Sarah Wendell. This is episode number 443 of Smart Podcast Trashy Books, and my guest is Amanda. We are going to chat about the dubious coverage of romance around Valentine's Day. Take cover. I've got wine in the bunker. You're welcome to join us. And we're going to talk about an outstanding article that Amanda was quoted in that appeared on Forbes.com written by Rachel Kramer Bussell. Yes, there's a link in the show notes. You should definitely check it out. Then, We answer a reader recommendation request letter from Kate, who is looking for snowed-in romances. Plus, we talk about food and video games, and we have our typical number of breakthroughs. I'm glad you're joining us. This episode is brought to you by The Duke Heist by Erica Ridley, and I have a sample of the audiobook at the end of the episode. If you like the show Leverage, you will like this, Regency bad guys doing good things like Robin Hood, only with, you know, more Dukes and carriages. There is some serious trope catnip in this book. We have secret identities, forbidden love, opposites attract, and found family, running heists to help those who have nowhere else to turn. Years ago, Chloe Winchester and five other uniquely talented orphans were adopted by a wealthy baron with a secret mission. The Motley Winchester family fights for justice from the margins of high society. Chloe Winchester is completely forgettable, A curse that gives her the ability to blend into any crowd. When the only father she's ever known makes a dying wish for his adopted family of orphans to recover a missing painting, she's the first one her siblings turn to, to steal it back. No one expects that in doing so, she'll abduct a duke. Oops. Lawrence Gosling, Duke of Faircliffe, is tortured by his father's mistakes, and to repair his estate's ruined reputation, he needs to wed a highborn heiress. Yet, when he finds himself in a carriage being driven down cobblestone streets by a beautiful woman who refuses to listen to him, he fears his heart is in trouble. But how can he sacrifice his family's legacy to follow true love? Now, if you like diverse historicals, the Winchester siblings represent a diverse and inclusive cast in terms of sexuality, gender identity, class, race, and abledness. Many of these elements are own voices for Erica Ridley, who is biracial, black, bisexual, and has a chronic disability. If you are curious about this story, there's a free prequel story called The Governess Gambit, and I will have a link to that in the show notes. You can grab your copy of The Duke Heist at your favorite store or visit ericaridley.com for more info. And there's a special bonus for a limited time. If you buy The Duke Heist and register your purchase on Erica's website, she'll send you a free bonus Winchester novella. Visit Erica Ridley, that's E-R-I-C-A-R-I-D-L-E-Y dot com. Stay tuned after the episode for a free sample of the audiobook of The Duke Heist. I have a compliment in this episode, and oh my gosh do I love doing this, to Anya G. Grammarians and linguists have had a meeting virtually, internationally, and they have decided and decreed That the plural of you is a superb of Anya. Now, first of all, I hope I pronounced Anya correctly, and if I didn't, I apologize, but still a superb of you. If you have supported the show with any amount, with a monthly pledge at Patreon, thank you. You're helping me keep each episode transcribed and accessible, and you're keeping the show going. I want to say hello to Ellen and Lily, our newest Patreons, and if you would like to join, have a look, patreon.com slash smartbitches. We talk about a lot of books and a lot of rec leagues and a lot of different things in this episode. And I will have links to all of the books we mention in the show notes, plus links to the bonus novella and links to pretty much everything we talk about, because that's what I do after I do the intro. I do the linking at com slash podcast. But now let's get started with Amanda and me and a reader letter from Kate. Thank you, Kate. On with the show. I want to start with big, fat fucking congratulations to you, because you you. are in Forbes. Not only are you in Forbes, but you're quoted in Forbes, and it's in an article about
1: romance Yeah, in February. Yeah. That doesn't suck. Yes! I mean, if it did suck, we almost had a bingo, right? Like a a shitty...
0: Romance yes. boom, 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 boom. I mean let's think of, it's February like I am sort of like all right everybody take cover cuz media coverage in February about romance unless the call is coming from inside the house it sucks and nice the nice thing about Rachel Kramer Rachel Kramer bustle. goodness i almost stuttered that she gets romance and so the minute she was looking for a quote i was like oh yes you can have all of the quotes you i who yes anything you want ma'am let's do this the the new uh women's best erotica that she edits the new one the lineup is unreal cool like the 2021 women's best erotica hang on i'll look it up
1: also when when is this episode is this pre-valentine's day this episode yeah this is for friday okay uh can i just give everyone a general reminder of uh you know just relax if there's a shitty romance article uh we've been through this before Yep. It's not a surprise. Bingo. Like literally play bingo. Yeah. Just relax. You don't need to. It's not worth your time or energy to tweet about it or go on a Facebook rant. Just chill out. There are plenty of other spaces and people covering romance who read and respect the genre. And we're all on limited bandwidth right now. So don't give your energy to just a rage cycle of bad romance takes in February. Just relax.
0: I get it. There is something very cathartic about, I have all of, like, like, I'm, like I've said so many times, big rage, short fuse. Like I have all of this rage stored up about all these things that I have no control over, but not only do I have the language and the ability to articulate every element of my rage, but I can go point by point about how much this one thing here, right right here sucks. Yeah. It's very cathartic, but it also just invites such into your timeline. But,
1: you know, what does it do for you? How does it serve you?
0: More importantly, ignominy is often the best response to some of this shit.
1: just you know, crack open a beer, glass of wine, pop an edible, and chill. just relax. it's it'll be it'll be over in a week. It, like yep. it'll be fine and and this
0: is this is an annual tradition. It you know, is. it is an annual tradition. I remember authors like 15 years ago complaining about how they would get press inquiries from people for Valentine's Day asking, well, you're a romance author. What do you think is the most romantic date? And they're like, I've been married to my husband for like 20 years. Romantic date is like going to bed early and ordering takeout.
1: It's like that annual tradition that shows up in horror movies where like an outsider comes to this creepy rural town (laughs) and it's like, you know, every. I like being in the creepy rural town. Keep going. (laughs) like Every year they have, I don't know, like the reckoning and they like sacrifice something. It's like that sort of like yearly ritual is like midsummer, you know.
0: Yep. It's Valentine's Day in romance land. Everybody get in the bunker. I got plenty of wine. We're going to get yeah. some ridiculous coverage, but you got good
1: coverage. And the and this
0: Forbes article was really really great. Good it was job.
1: Very interesting and I um really appreciated how many different like facets of like romance critique that she was able to like there's podcasters and like academics and I know it's like a really interesting spread of of readers
0: yes much much toasting of wine to rachel kramer kramer bustle and while i have it pulled up best women's erotica of the year volume six just came out in december of 2020 and here are some of the people that are in the anthology Naima simone shelly bell mia hopkins olivia waite Anuja Varghese, I think I said that correctly. If I didn't, I apologize. Alexis Wilder, Katrina Jackson, Zoe Castile, Saskia Vogel, and Jeanette Gray. And there are other people in there that was just a quick glance at the contributors. So, yeah.
1: That is a good lineup.
0: Right? Super awesome. So, uh, good job. Congratulations. Yeah. I I hope this is the start of a... Falls out awesome February, where everything that's written about romance is insightful and thoughtful and interesting and you know takes romance as seriously as other genres are taking. I realize I sound like I'm high as a kite right now, and I yeah. really, really not. And I forgot to turn off my phone because I'm a bad podcaster. But still, I mean that's maybe uh, you are setting the tone here.
1: That, that is that. Uh, that's
0: some optimism, wasn't it? a yeah, like terrifying optimism.
1: Optimistic. I mean, yeah, I'm um, extremely
0: optimistic here.
1: Me, not so much. Uh, well, you know. <laughs> me, yeah. yeah. But, you know, it could go either way.
0: Yeah. We started off really strong. Real, real strong. So, mad props to Rachel <laughs> Kramer, Bustle and to you and Forbes. Awesome. Thank you. So, now that we're in the bunker of February. Yep. Bunkered it's literally... And actually snowing. I just want you to know if you hear walking around, Adam has a meeting and he has to put on a real shirt. Oh, no. Not only that, but there was apparently an email chain among the other men in his group who are going on, to, going on this call. Like, do we have to wear ties? Should we wear jackets? Was the verdict shirts and ties, no jacket? Shirts, ties, no jacket. So he's yes. going to be wearing like sweatpants and then a button down and a tie. I mean,
1: you yeah. got to do what you got to do. That sounds horrific.
0: Oh, I, we, I was... I mean, clearly, I got dressed up. I'm in the hoodie of working. This <laughs> I the-
1: was in my robe, but I got
0: too hot, so I. <laughs> <laughs> so it is actually snowing, and we have a reader letter. Would you be so kind as to read the reader letter? Sure. Very excited for this.
1: Okay, let me scroll back up. Okay, greetings from my quarantine cave in New Hampshire. Greetings, hi, New Englander. Um, I hope you and your loved ones are doing well. I will not assume you remember me from past emails. So let me establish my credentials.
0: Spoiler alert. I do in fact remember this person, from past email, <laughs> but that's okay. Cause I remember things by reading them. So good job, brain.
1: I am a longtime fan of the site, listener, yeah. of the podcast and Patreon supporter since you rolled it out. Thank also- you. <laughs> I also discovered my second favorite podcast, Friendshipping. Sarah loves it. She talks about it, I think, at least once during every Twitch stream we do.
0: I love Um, it so much.
1: Yeah. Thanks to your recommendation. Yes, you should assume that your podcast is my favorite based on that last sentence. I just love this community you have built, and I'm so grateful it exists. In 2019, I faced some big changes, divorce, new job, out-of-state move. And it is not an exaggeration to say that your podcast helped me get through all of that turbulence. Isn't that sweet? Um, it felt like you were a friend I could take with me when I moved to a new place and knew no one. Podcast friends are very portable. Like we many do. O- F- It'll in your
0: pocket. In your pocket. Yeah.
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. Like many other listeners, my favorite episodes are when you and Amanda just hang out to talk about books and food and video games and whatever else makes your hearts happy. Well, you're in luck because that's you're what we're doing. You're <laughs> so in luck. Welcome
0: to this episode, which you have created. We will give you all the things
1: you like. Yes. It feels like I am hanging out with a couple of close friends, basking in their affection and admiration for each other. Warm, fuzzy feelings are very much appreciated during this dumpster fire of the year.
0: Oh, we are sending all the warm, fuzzy feelings. In fact, until a few <laughs> minutes ago, Amanda was wearing the warm, fuzzy robe of affection I feelings.
1: It's from Airy. It's amazing. It's like a lovely soft sherpa robe that I bought on sale it's yep. great that is probably all the gushing praise you can stand oh, drink for the word gushing everyone take a shot um cheers <laughs> you can stand so let's move on to my request
0: I'm out of tea so I've switched to water okay
1: I believe that you are also a fan of Snowden romance I hope I have that right
0: oh you have it so right
1: me not so much but I'll we'll explain well um, we'll go in yeah we'll explain I love this particular type of forced proximity and was hoping you had some recommendations for me. I prefer historical to contemporary, but will read both, especially when I trust the recommender. Bonus points for marriage of convenience because I love that trope. Winter is settling here in New England, and that seems like a great time to read about some folks trapped together in a not really dangerous situation. If there is a bit of danger added to the mix, that's okay too. The only trigger I can think of is to ask you to stay away from is obvious violations of consent and coercion, but I don't think you would blithely swim past that without mentioning it.
0: No, not ever.
1: Nope. I'm sure that I love this setup because the first romance I ever read was The Hidden Heart by Candace Camp, oh. a Snowden romance where a Duke and governess have to find out who is targeting the strange assortment of travelers that have become stranded at the Duke's country house. I left a rambling message about it for the podcast episode where you asked listeners about the first romance they ever read. I'm so glad the heroine of that book was such a badass. and made me want to read more like it. Here I am, roughly 20 years later, still loving romance novels. Let me sum up. Okay. Snowden. Got it. Historical. Understood. Marriage of convenience, optional. Can confirm. Dangery mystery elements, okay. All right. Thank you. Best wishes to you and yours by Kate. Thanks, Hi, Kate. Kate.
0: Yay, Kate. We are here for you. It's literally snowing, so I could not think of a more perfect recommendation yeah. letter to share. And if, and if you're a new England
1: Kate, then you're also snow snowy.
0: Yeah, you got but snow. Yeah. I hope things are better for Kate. Yeah. I hope all of these changes have turned out as a net positive, 2020 so notwithstanding.
1: Yeah. I feel like we should just all just scratch that off. Like, so just scratch it. Yeah. I
0: mean, <laughs> you can't. It'll it'll contribute to some knowledge I have in the future, but right I now know. I'm just tired.
1: I'm it is a permanent state of being tired. Even
2: oh, Lord.
1: Even with my sedatives now that I'm on, <laughs> I'm still just in a permanent state of being tired. Yeah. Okay. All right. Snowden, I will briefly explain. So Sarah does like a Snowden romance.
0: And I do, and Kate explained it perfectly. It's it's forced proximity, but you're not in imminent danger.
1: So for me, I feel a lot of the times a snowed in situation is usually adjacent to a holiday romance. It usually happens around that time, uh, or like you know, on on Christmas Eve or whatever, and I do not like holiday romances. I do not like Christmas romances. Let me specify. I don't like Christmas romances. I've written about it for the site, and I just I don't have fond memories of Christmas myself. No, nope, so, me neither.
0: I recommend Judaism. You get off the hook for the whole damn thing. <laughs> um, get to go to Chinese in a movie. Or just have Chinese brought into your house and then watch a movie on the television. I can just do that anyway. I mean, yeah, there's no requirement, but
1: yeah. But yeah, so it's complicated for me. And like, whereas, you know, Sarah can read them and probably be fine. um, Yeah, I just, I'm a Grinch around Uh the holidays. And I would just love to read about a holiday romance with like two Grinches, just kind of commiserating about how much everything sucks. Um, I would love that. So Sarah has a bunch of recommendations. I think I only had two to add. Um, but Sarah, if you wanted to go first,
0: I will go first. Yeah. Okay. So first of all, I would like praise Amanda. Oh, I would like praise. Oh yes. Praise for Sarah. Because we have a whole rec league of inclement weather and I remembered it Yes, and got the link. And it's from 2017, which might as well have been an entirely different era in my life.
1: Can we get like a round of applause for Sarah's brain remembering?
0: Sarah remembered a thing. Good job. Yay. So um, I am very honored to be the friend in your ear when you made Life Changes. And I hope you're doing okay. And I hope this list of books keeps you going for the rest of this year. And that we all end this year like leaving the house from the forced proximity of pandemic quarantine times. So first, one of my very favorite holiday novels, and I'm pretty sure that I recommended this to you when I replied to your original email, um, is not necessarily snowed in, but it is a somewhat scandalous holiday house party. And the house party historical functions in a lot of similar ways to being snowed in. Because once you show up, you're not leaving for a while. You know the yeah. presumption of a house party is that you're going to park for a good also, while. Also,
1: something I'll put a note in the notes. We also have a rec league for house parties. Oh, excellent! So
0: excellent. So we'll have, we'll link that to that in the show notes as well. Yeah. So one of my favorites that I'm pretty sure I emailed to Kate is "Season for Surrender" by Teresa Romaine because there's a very scandalous holiday house party with a host who's very scandalous and turns out to be kind of nerdy, which is chef's kiss catnip. Now, the thing about several of the recommendations that I have is that they are novellas or shorts because Ah. being snowed in is a rather, as I wrote in the notes, it's a melty conflict. It's rather temporary and it's melty, it melts. It's not very permanent and forced proximity, the, the, the tension of forced proximity is found partially in the idea that the person you are with the person you're with in this proximity situation might be a little different, a little more genuine or a little bit more stressed or a little bit more specific Than the you who you are when you're outside of the proximity situation. And part of the tension is reconciling who you are in this forced proximity scenario and then who you are after. Sort of like with speed, they allegedly fall in love on a high speed bus chase and (laughs) they're going to be
1: fine forever
0: after from
1: there. Which is wild because, like, if that were me, if I were Sandy, Sandra Bullock, my anxiety would be through the absolute roof.
0: You're not uh, going to fall in love with Chris, Keanu Reeves as
1: he sort of stands over the seat while you're I mean, driving? I can, under normal circumstances, <laughs> sure. <But> like, <laughs> Keanu, there's a situation here, and I don't have time for this.
0: Yeah, the, see, there are there are people who in that situation would get hearty pants, and there are people in that situation who might not. So the, the idea of forced proximity... Um, the tension of it comes from the sort of the aftermath. What happens when you're not in that forced proximity situation? If you are your genuine self in this limited time and space, what happens when you have to interact with the rest of your life and the rest of the world? And you have this person who might know a slightly different version of you. So I
1: also think that's why I have problems with novellas too, in that, like, they're so short. Mm -hmm. I tried to write one and I called it a novella and it's like 56,000 words like the conflict has to be pretty low stakes for a novella right and you like a high stakes conflict I do like a high stake we're uncovering all sorts of things today it's like going to a therapy session and like connect like
0: I think that has happened before we've we've made a breakthrough (laughs) welcome to Sarah I'm your book therapist yeah So a lot of these are novellas because you have a very, the the snowed in part is a very short lasting conflict. I mean, you're going to have a big storm and snowstorms can be slow and ponderous, but you know, a couple of days later, someone would hope that they would have a plow, maybe. I mean, (laughs) at some point you're going to get out of wherever you're stuck. Uh, They're plowing twofold. Yes. Lots of plowing, different kinds. Sometimes there's salt and sometimes there is uh, control. (laughs) You, You want to apply in the right place. So here are some options. They are not necessarily historical, but I have a few. So first Snowbound with the CEO by Shannon Stacy also became a movie Snowbound for Christmas that you might still be able to find on some streaming services. And then another short romance, Midnight Assignment by Victoria Dahl. I always remember this one because the two people who are stuck in the hotel are FDIC investigators. And I believe they're doing some forensic accounting. That is your jam. Super hot and sexy nerds doing nerdy things stuck in a place. Hell yeah. It helps that my husband is a municipal bond attorney who works for the (laughs) Securities and Exchange Commission. I don't know of any SEC romances though. I'll have to find out. Now
1: I think I have read one.
0: Okay. Well, I need to know it because I need to read it and I, I'm gonna talk I mean, about correct, it. Correct
1: me if I'm wrong. I might be wrong on this, but uh it is
0: Googling correct. of the podcast has occurred. <laughs> All right, you Google, I'll keep going. Now one I did read very recently, I read this last year, is an older Mary Balog that you can usually find hoopla or in the library she's reissuing her older regency romances and regency by which i mean the signet regencies that are much smaller than a regency set mass market which would be a much bigger plot the signet regencies were a little smaller in in plot complexity and lighter in page count all of the mary balog reissues have these gorgeous silhouettes against a striped cover so that you can just see them at a glance you know exactly what you're looking for this one is called snow angel and what happens in this one is a young woman is in a carriage with her brother and they have a fight and she gets out of the carriage and she stomps off knowing that her brother will eventually he drives off because he's a jerk but he, she knows he's going to turn around except he doesn't because his carriage throws a wheel or there's a problem and they don't have cell phones so she he can't be like texting her like sorry wheel are you dead in the snow so she ends up at this stranger's house she's a widow and he is supposed to be hooking up with his mistress but his mistress got sick and here is this convenient woman here in the snow for some convenient, convenient no saying no strings sexy times so they have like they're snowed in they're stuck and they're both you know DTF.
1: I'm going to put that on my business card. Amanda Deal, a convenient woman.
0: (laughs) But um, they think they're getting in some no strings, sexy times, interlude in the snow. And then, of course, there are strings because it turns out he is engaged to marry someone that she is related to. And there's a big old... Horse proximity, house party! And they have to confront their noble feelings of really, really having horny pants for each other, but also having familial obligations to other people that prevent them from indulging in these horny pants the way they would like. Found the book. What is it? SEC romance?
1: Hot Asset by Lauren Lane. The heroine is an SEC agent. um, Oh. Investigating... Uh, The hero who like works on wall street i thought it was okay i wanted more the the like cover copy alludes to a lot of like uh not necessarily like enemies to lovers but like you know antagonism between the hero and heroine and Mm -hmm. and i do like lauren lane but i wish there were more of that it it switches to like pants feelings pretty dang quickly Mm. um but she is an sec agent
0: i don't know if i can read about wall street hot shots at this moment but i am uh-huh. very
1: <laughs> curious yeah
0: so oh, so she so she's in uh what the hell is
1: that be, department like, called white, white collar crimes and stuff enforcement yeah she's an enforcement sure. i don't know any of this stuff i don't yeah. either that's that's the only one I remember that I've ever seen is that right. one. And I read it and it was okay. I,
0: I might have to read it and be like, all right, so does this happen? And I'm Adam's going to be like, I don't freaking know. That's not my department. Why are you
1: <laughs> asking me these things?
0: So, excellent. I'll give it a try. It's Kindle Unlimited. I have, you know, no risk. Yeah,
1: I, I think so, yeah.
0: So there's another Mary Balog that also has a snowstorm. And that's simply unforgettable. Now, unfortunately for me, I don't remember whether I've read this. So irony. Um, they meet in a snowstorm. This is apparently a thing that Mary Bellog likes to deploy. I'm all in favor. Tessa Dare also has a novella called Lord Dashwood Missed Out. That takes place in a takes place in a snowstorm. And Carla Kelly, who writes really lovely emotional, wrenching historicals. I think she's now switched to writing inspired. But her older books are often Regency historicals and they're very emotionally um, driven. There's a lot of emotional conflict between the characters. She has a book called Softly Falling, which is, I believe, about ranchers and there's a snowstorm and they have to save the cattle. There's a problem in the snow. Um, (laughs) Now, Jackie Lowe's her pretend Christmas date is not I believe a snowstorm and it is not a historical, but it has a uh, relationship of convenience and it says so in the title. And there's also lots of holiday Michigas going on and Michigas. And I don't know if this qualifies, um, but I'm thinking that there's a good chance of snowed in anytime you have a polar bear shifter. Right. Sure. Yeah. Right? yeah. right. Yeah. So if you, if you're thinking paranormal snowed in, look for your polar bears, polar bears.
1: Good. Look, look instead of like, look for the helpers. It's look
0: no, for the- look for the polar bears. They're going to be in the snow. All right. What are your recommendations?
1: Okay. Kate? I don't think I have one that ticks all the boxes, but mm-hmm. you know, I'm doing the best I can. No, um, you're fine. So the one that This I, isn't sure, Jam. It's okay. I know. I know. Um, but the the first one I thought of was No Groom at the Inn. By oh, Megan. Good call. It was uh it's a novella. <laughs> historical Seriously. romance. It's a melty conflict. Yeah. Uh historical romance, not marriage of convenience, but fake relationship. Um there are scene-stealing chickens and other barnyard animals um and yeah elise gave it an a in a lightning review so she really enjoyed it and i'm sure sarah will link it in the show notes if you want to read the review um but yeah fake fiance um you know kind of together at an inn, snowy winter time that's that's that um I am mentioning In a Holidays by Christina Lauren, even though I don't like holiday romances, I liked this one because it had a bit of a twist to it. It's like mm-hmm. groundhog day meets a holiday romance. Like the the heroine is kind of like stuck in this holiday time loop, which is a fucking nightmare for me. Uh. Like it's <laughs> is my worst nightmare. Um but it's also like snowy they get together in this like cabin in utah which um christina i believe lives in utah um of christina Warren. um so it's kind of like a little bit snowed in with you know like a giant family and family friends but there's kind of like a time loop scenario mm-hmm. um which, I thought which was- is which
0: is another kind of sort of forced proximity it's not snow it's um- yeah improbable looping of the space-time continuum but you know same thing yeah before we continue with the rest of the recommendations I wanted to give you a heads up because if you love Amanda and me on the podcast then mark your calendars for Tuesday nights at seven thirty p.m eastern we have a live podcast bonus after party on stereo if you're one of the people who tries to talk to us while you're listening this is perfect for you Tuesday nights, 7.30 Eastern, we are going to be live on Stereo. Stereo is a live broadcast platform that allows us to talk to you in real time with avatars so we don't have to like put on lipstick or, you know, do our hair or anything. You'll be able to listen to us live only on the Stereo app and you get to record messages for us to play during the conversation. We're going to be doing random silly trivia, discussing essential quarantine topics and we're always going to talk about food and we definitely have book recommendations and we want to hear from you so you can be part of the fun. All you need to do is download the free Stereo app and follow us at Stereo.com slash smartbitches so you can connect with us when we're live Tuesdays, 7.30 Eastern. There's a whole avatar building component that is so much fun and we love looking at yours they're so cute just go to stereo.com slash smart pitches to get started so you can join us tuesday nights at seven thirty eastern i'm going to have more details and a clip from our latest broadcast after the show I also want to let you know that this podcast is brought to you in part by pros. Now Amanda and I talk a lot on our Twitch stream and on stereo about how we are trying the curly girl method, because I did not know that my hair is wavy. This is a quarantine's discovery and I am shocked. So I've been doing a ton of research to figure out what products to try and pros came at the perfect time. Pros creates custom shampoo and conditioners based on your personal hair analysis and their algorithm. If you love a quiz, there is a quiz. They have an online quiz that dives into every possible factor that might affect your hair. My personal favorite was it telling me that because I live outside of DC that humidity is a factor. Yes, yes it is. I can confirm. Their algorithm will personalize over 50 billion formula combinations and they will come up with a unique blend that addresses my exact concerns. In my case, my concerns are what do I do? with wavy hair i have no idea well now i sort of do i received my order and wow okay first you get to pick your scent and the scent totally works for me and second it seems my hair really likes the shampoo and conditioner and the hair mask that goes on first after my first wash i had ringlets on their own no curling iron no permanent that was from the 80s just my hair doing its thing with prose products it was soft and Curly, I I am shocked. I have no idea that my hair did any of this and I'm having the best time. So if you and your quarantine's hair are on the what is happening right now journey with me, I have a coupon for you. Pros, is the healthy hair regimen with your name all over it, literally on the bottle, your name will be on it. You can take the free in-depth hair quiz, yes, online quiz, and get 15% off your first order today. Go to prose.com slash trashy That's P-R-O-S-E.com slash trashy for your free in-depth hair quiz and 15% off your first order. And now back to more snowed in recommendations with me and Amanda.
1: Um, and then my last one that I just thought of while we were recording is Snow Spelled by Stephanie Burgess. Good one. Yeah, another shorter. I don't know if it's quite a novella, but it is shorter. Mm-hmm. Um, it is technically historical feeling, but it's historical fantasy. And I really loved the kind of like society Burgess created here. So in this society, men become magic users. And women become politicians, um, but the main character doesn't really have like any political ambitions, and is able to use magic. And she be she becomes like this, like oh, the first woman to you know go through all this magic stuff, and then kind of borks it, just totally like beefs her opportunities. Um and so she's attending a house party oh. where a snowstorm is oh. raging in um and check check her ex fiance I believe is there in attendance and the snow's getting bad and they're like this seems different than a normal snowstorm so they kind of like investigate the surrounding area in the middle of a snowstorm and discover, like, this, like, Faye character causing all this hullabaloo. Um, (laughs) I mean, I don't want to, like, spoil anything, but, like, yes, the the snow and stuff like that has – it's not a natural snowstorm. (laughs) But, I, I mean, it's very wintry and cozy, and I loved the, like, magic systems um, it's more on like the tender side in terms of like sexual content, but it's also kind of a a snowy romance with a little bit of a a twist with the fantasy elements. Um but I, I like that entire series a lot. It's like a very like sweet, like mug of cocoa sort of of read. Um
0: and that, that works really well with the snowed in trope, because like I said, you're not in great imminent danger if you're not outside yeah. freezing to death. If you're inside, you have food, you have fuel, you're warm. There's body heat to
1: yeah, yeah. keep you warm sometimes.
0: Yeah. Inside,
1: blowing. Um, you know, you, you just got to, you got to get into that tauntaun.
0: Yeah. Just <laughs> slice, slice its belly open and crawl <laughs> up in the intestines. You'll be fine. But it's not it's not imminently life-threatening if you're not worried about hypothermia
1: yeah I mean if you want that you know there's white out by Adrian yeah Anders yeah
0: well they can't bone because it's so cold they'll die it's
1: so cold it's um, so
0: cold they cannot bone
1: the ending we that was a recent book club pick for the romance book club I run and is this the Harvard book club
0: Porter the Square Har- Porter Square. Sorry, sorry, sorry. No, I was trying. thinking Harvard Square and no. <laughs> replaced so Porter many with Harvard.
1: Squares in New England. So You're many squares.
0: Very square. What is with that?
1: Oh, well, like so many squares. So many squares. But the roads are all janky as shit. Like it's oh, like one yeah. way, uh, this way, one oh, way. Like,
0: yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: It's terrible. It's
0: like Greenwich um. Village. You'll never get out if you go in.
1: That. <laughs> um, That's like the basis of a horror story, I feel like. <laughs> stuck in crunch village yeah but whiteout was good up until like the last act i suppose uh, yeah the
0: overall rescue is a little unsatisfying but the part from the beginning up until that point is super tense with competence and like i said they can't yeah. bone because they'll die of cold
1: and the danger feels real like it's a oh, real yeah. it's oh, not yeah. like You know, I I love a romance
0: where you have where the people in the book have to contend with the fact that they're in a place
1: where if they are stupid,
0: the land will kill them.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it it,
0: cuts down on a lot of extraneous bullshit.
1: I liked it a lot because for romantic suspense, I was just like getting tired of like. um, There is a serial
0: killer. No, there's a serial killer. Government
1: super soldiers and they've been augmented and I'm like, like. I
0: really liked the fact that they did have an actual human danger that was pursuing them and that sometimes that human danger was actually um apt not inept, but capable. Yeah. Like they didn't screw up all the time. It wasn't like they were being chased by idiots. But the other danger that was working against them was the fact that they were in Antarctica and the land would kill I them do. if they were dumb.
1: I do love a, and I think we have a recollect for this too. Um, I do love a story where it's like the couple versus like the environment.
0: Oh yeah. That creates Uh. a really good tension because again, it boils down to absolute essentials. What are the essentials we need to survive? What are the essentials we need to get along and if you if if you have to put up with some annoying personality quirks in order to survive, you will tolerate. No, a I'm lot just going to
1: murder quirks. them and eat them for sustenance. But don't forget,
0: in- there's a limited
1: time before
0: you know full rigor sets in, where their body heat you can just crawl in their intestines and keep warm for a little while.
1: Tauntaun, some- fantasy come to life, right there. Yeah, Amanda. Sipping <laughs> it into
0: Amanda likes intestines. It'll be the title of this episode.
1: When I was in high school, I was so tiny that I could fit into a pillowcase. <laughs> um, and like I have a I have a photo of my boyfriend at the time holding me up and I'm like inside a pillowcase, like a normal <laughs> So, I feel so like you I could, could theoretically fit I make inside it some work. abdominal cavity. Yeah, I could make it work. Just move all the stuff out of there, you know, clean house a little bit.
0: You're dead. You don't need this.
1: It's Marie Kondo, the inside. Of-
0: <laughs> all bladder. It's optional. Get out.
1: <laughs> does this rib cage spark joy? No.
0: <laughs> Picture you in there with some mallets playing the xylophone on the ribs. That's my new ringtone. <laughs> this does spark joy.
1: Okay, keep in the ribs. <laughs> but those are... Yeah. Yeah, those are the wrecks that I have. They're not those are good wrecks.
0: Those are very good wrecks. <laughs> I know it's not it's not your jam. Because no. I'm very much a internal emotional conflict reader. I like when the conflict is you gotta work your shit out, but the shit can't be so large that it's not workoutable without serious therapeutic intervention. It's
1: so interesting because I'm not a big internal conflict person because oh, I like,
0: very much am.
1: It's in because I feel like In terms of, like, mental health stuff, like, you know, we're both supporters and advocates for therapy and stuff like that and, like, working your shit out. Yep. Um, And, but, like, I don't want to see anyone else working their shit out. It's like, I'm trying to work my own shit out. I don't need to worry about your fictional shit on top of my shit. Um. You know, I'd rather have, like, the world is going to explode. I'd rather if that... If we even... don't bone. <laughs> I know. If we smooch, some the prophecy will be fulfilled and the world will go dark for 800 years. I um, mean,
0: sounds great.
1: So <laughs> internal conflict is hard because I'm thinking, like, get on some antidepressants and go to a fucking therapist, you idiots.
0: <laughs> this is why this shit has to be workoutable without the need for long-term therapeutic intervention because that would be a very long book i would like to point out yeah that when we stream and we play stardew what are you doing (laughs) what do you mean what am i doing have a sword and you're killing shit that wants to kill you your whole stardew play is all about (laughs) external conflict you want to go thwart the things that want to kill you what am i doing making plants and making (laughs) friends and I'm looking for cutscenes. So I am noodling around the farm and petting all the chickens and harvesting the crops and making random shit that I can then go in out and give to people because I am after the interpersonal relationships of this game. Whereas you are, give me the sword, go into the mines, going to kill some slimes.
1: Look, I'm eradicating the local ecology is what I'm
0: doing. You are all about the external (laughs) conflicts of Stardew Valley and I am about the internal, interpersonal, and, and we both dislike very much that there's very little mental health and pastoral care in Stardew Valley. They have oh a serious problem oh with God. their mayor. Like we have, oh we, have we have whole designs about the political system. But when we're playing day-to-day inside the game, you're all about the external conflict the game will end if you don't slay those slimes. Whereas <laughs> I'm like, let me go make friends with people. Have smart cutscenes. I'll give you things that you like. Oh, but I, I will think that's you why... this thing
1: that you like because you like it. I think that's why it works so well, though, right? Because like, oh, you for sure. to, Like, we're not really like, you know, stepping on each other's toes or whatever. No, we like... have
0: turf in this game and it's complimentary.
1: Yeah. I can't also... go in
0: the casino, though, because I didn't unlock the casino quest. <laughs> But when you <laughs> unlock a level of the mines, I just jump down five levels. I'm like, oh, this yeah. chest gives me some boots. And this next chest gives me some we swords. We right? Like it works reap, out.
1: Re- we reap the benefits. You, like, cook things so I can go into the mines. Right, exactly. I go into the mines and unlock levels so then you yeah. can get the loot from the lets I it got works. boots. Yeah, it totally
0: works. It is a, a complementary set of priorities that works. But you are all about the external conflict and I am all about the internal conflict. Even at Stardew.
1: Yeah, that's very true. I do I do love swinging my sword around.
0: Had another breakthrough.
1: <laughs> <laughs> another breakthrough. Amazing. Yeah, I don't... I need more sci-fi romances, by the way. I like I feel like publishing hasn't caught up yet <laughs> with my need. So I need more high stakes the world is going to end
0: face romance Smooch,
1: yes yeah, smooching
0: and have you have you depleted the store of Raylo fanfic
1: i am pretty caught up <laughs> on the things that i've been reading and andromione fanfic uh, draco and hermione um
0: it's not transphobia it's transphobia
1: and yeah and i feel like i've gone through recommendations we've gotten in the past. It's like, I need some deep cuts at this point. <laughs> well, maybe we
0: need to do a rec league of the world will end if we don't bone.
1: Yeah. And because that's not necessarily,
0: definitely. it's not necessarily a specific genre, but the mechanic of the world ending is going to happen most likely in paranormal and science fiction and fantasy, because then the world mechanic of the world actually being able to end it doesn't usually show up a lot in contemporary romance, you know. I, I know. The world keeps on going. Someone Often. there's always another cupcake bakery, come bookshop slash coffee come bookshop.
1: Y- yeah, <laughs> <laughs> slash okay. coffee shop. Like wedding planner, <laughs> small town you know, lawyer.
0: You know, I just realized something. There are a lot of book descriptions where I read about one of the characters' um, professions. And I'm like, oh, that's too much people.
1: (laughs) How sad is is that? Is Dukes to historical romances wedding planners to contemporary romance?
0: Oh, good question. Because all of those are like character archetype shorthands, right? Like Duke implies wealth, power, influence, network.
1: Event Social planning status. is like type A, super organized, detail But also oriented. it's a form
0: of personal caretaking to be yeah. like, you know this as a person who coordinates even virtual events. When you plan an event, you are anticipating the comfort and enjoyment of other people. It's a form of caretaking. Yeah. So like if I am hosting Thanksgiving, I will look at my dining room and be like, all right, what is everyone? what do I need here so everyone is comfortable and enjoys the meal? If you are doing a book event, you're like, what is the... What is the thing that you want people to experience? What is the What are the needs that you need to anticipate before the thing happens? So event planning, wedding planning, all that kind of thing is still gathering and people caring for, I could have said that better, caring for people.
1: Yeah, that's the right <laughs> word. That's how those words go. Good job, brain. <laughs> it was a long road, but we got there. But I got there. You know what
0: I mean? So all of that is archetype. archetype shorthand for caretaking in some way it's still a form of meeting the needs of people in a specific situation or gathering um and there are, there are some some professions i look at them and I'm like oh it's too much people the people no people
1: just thinking about like running a small brick and mortar business sounds exhausting
0: well i have a small business but it is not brick and mortar
1: but it is so, work oh, yeah it is, it is br- a lot of work I mean, who oh, I'm sure like it's nice. The fantasy of like owning your own bakery or bookshop or whatever is nice, but the logistics.
0: Oh yeah. Oh. And, and it's okay, so I don't get me wrong. I um because we were talking about this in the stream recently about, you know, it's okay, try things. Try things. They don't have to be, you know, they don't have to be the only thing you ever do forever. So I am a slightly different generation than you. Um, One, just one up. Yeah, but I'm the tail end of of Gen X and I came out of college in a completely different economy in a completely different job market. Um, I bought a house when I was 25, like is a completely different world. So basic with the, with the acknowledgement that the world that I entered as a adult in quotes is a different world than the world that exists right now.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I've, was, I've eaten two things of avocado toast, so that means I'll never own. Well, away. now
0: you're fucked.
1: I'm fucked. Sorry. All, all of my savings went to avocado toast.
0: Oh, God. So with that understanding, I arrived in a job market where it was before the gig economy, but there was a lot of find your purpose, make your purpose your job, find the work that you love, make your job your passion. Like there was a lot of that bullshit because- Well, it was a completely different economy and you could choose things, right? So I am a person who up until this became my full-time job, I was a secretary because I was real good at organizing other people. Like nine other people, one calendar, not a problem. And one thing I think that people don't really understand is that administrative work is a skill set. Not everybody has it. Um, And part of administrative organization is much like event planning, anticipating the needs of people before they get there. So everything is set. So I came out of the of college and went into grad school and entered the job market where there was a lot of messaging about like find your purpose make your purpose your job and that's only gotten worse but that turned into the gig economy of you know cobble together nine different jobs so that you can make a living oh
1: yeah like hustle culture and the gig economy so toxic is A nightmare and I feed into it I have a gazillion things that I'm doing to make money it is exhausting and I mean this is something that I've talked about with like my therapist my friends and you and just like you know I say yes to things uh even though I probably shouldn't because of my limited time um but you know like I feel like my generation I'm a millennial um
0: and i will forever stand for millennials by the way i don't tolerate any (laughs) anti-millennial bullshit and i will tell you as someone raising two members of gen z they're pretty fucking awesome
1: good but i feel like millennials get like the blame for a lot of things oh
0: yeah Um, yeah and everyone ignores gen x it's great
1: we we ruined the napkin industry and industries i didn't even know existed we somehow ruined
0: they Um, were um they were not adaptive it's not your fault
1: But it's just like you know, I feel like for millennials, we kind of the the pervasive motto is like you could always be doing more. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, it's part
0: of the laziness lie.
1: Yeah, like you could always be doing doing more.
0: You can always be doing more.
1: Um, yeah, like you you have this spare moment in your day. Like, what are you doing to make it productive? And it's like I just want to lay here in my bed. that is
0: productive?
1: I Rest know, but, like,
0: weapon. when, like... It's hard to undo up, that messaging. It's so hard to undo that messaging. Yeah,
1: we don't see as, like, taking a nap as being productive or, like, playing a video game as being productive. Like, physical um, examples of productivity that can be, like, measured are clearly valued more than uh, psychological or emotional. What are you laughing at?
0: All right, so... So, you know, I have my traveler's notebook, right? (laughs)
1: Yes.
0: So I track four habits, Okay. right? Here's February. Four habits. Because I try to go easy on myself. Did I meditate? Did I do yoga or go on the treadmill? Did I work out in some way? Did I read? And did I play or create? So... I value play and create and relax and play video games or sew or quilt or whatever, but I'm still tracking it on a productivity (laughs) matrix. So yeah, no one's
1: immune. (laughs) If you can't physically look at it, did you really even do it? Did I
0: draw the bubble? If I didn't draw the bubble, then I didn't correctly play. Oh, for the love of God. I mean, but, but you know what? It helps me think, okay, this is important. So on one hand, this is important. I need to make sure that I spend some time of my day doing goofy shit. I, I need to play Witcher 3 and kill some bandits and loot their pants for chicken sandwiches. This is yeah. important to my productivity. On the other hand, I'm tracking it in a productivity tracker. You, yeah, get dumb, but yeah. <laughs> I see the paradox is what I'm trying to say here.
1: Yeah, yeah. You're right. None of us are immune. No, not at all. We all find ways of like tracking, whether like you're trying to gamify, you know, your shit or whatever, or, you know, use a fancy app. It's still the same.
0: I have a tracker for what my hair is doing. (laughs) And I'm a very lazy ass bullet journaler, by the way. This, I've had this one notebook. This notebook goes back to. December of 2017 so I've been working on this one for a while check out check out my overachieving ass in December of 2017 look at this oh bullshit gosh. it's color-coded and everything oh was I was I making progress did I avoid wheat did I do push-ups did I meditate did I read did I eat vegetarian did I study language Did I do something? God, Sarah, calm down. I was like, what was life like in
1: December of
0: 2017? I was a lot more fussy about my habit tracker as as opposed to now, where it's just a dot and it's four things. And I try not to make myself track more than four, because then I just get anxious about whether I'm meeting my productivity goals with my little dots, which is just bananas. Let's be real.
1: Linus. what are you doing? He's doing something. I don't know. Come here. Wait a minute! Come here, big boy. Just like we went on a tangent,
0: as usual. But before we go, we do have a new thing happening tonight. Yeah. I mean, this will be up on Friday, but it will have already happened, and I might have a sample from tonight's show in this Ooh. podcast at the end of the podcast. I mean, yeah. this is just very podcast inception, folks. I'm really sorry, but every Tuesday night at 7:30 Eastern Time, Amanda and I are going to be live on Stereo, which you can download at stereocom bitches. Yep. And we're going to do oversharing. And I just want you to know, hang on, I got to reach behind my recording box here. I have a deck of question cards called okay. oversharing, oversharing. Okay. oversharing cards. So if we okay. like run out of things to overshare about, okay. I have questions.
1: And you can, for anyone listening, yes. you can submit us live questions.
0: We want to hear your answers to the oversharing questions you can record a little voice memo and then we'll play it on the show now technically i'm supposed to doesn't get a moderator who will vet they say no 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 no, no. we're not doing we're just going to play it so you can say whatever the heck you want we'll just be like oh okay but if you say something gross i might stop it but i entrust you not to say something gross people who listen to us are not gross at all ask us questions that are gonna be hard to answer like math ones
1: i will answer anything i have no boundaries i am aware
0: (laughs) Probably I have a few, that. but only because my children are on the internet. and
1: Yeah. You
0: know, I've already have enough of a presence on the internet. Yeah. That like, like at fair. one point, my older son's friends were like, we we Googled your mom. He's like, oh, shit. He's like, Why did you do that? <laughs> well, he, they're like, did you know she's an author? He's like, yeah. And he's like waiting. like, And we found her website. He's like, yeah, there it is. <laughs> 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 Sorry, dude. <laughs> However... They're allowed to curse in my house because mail arrives to the house that says "bitches" on it, so it's kind of like, all right, well, that's off the table.
1: Yeah, I mean, when I visit my parents, I, I don't know. I feel, I feel like curse words are low stakes. They're like superfluous. Like, who cares? Like, mm-hmm. who decided like "fuck" was a bad word and you can't say it? Many people. But
0: like, why? Why? What's so bad about it? I don't know, but if have you ever looked at the uh, the linguistic etymology of curse words in different languages? They have a lot of sounds in common. There's specific fricatives and explosives and vowel like sounds. Like
1: Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. The, this the sounds those sounds coming out of your mouth actually create serotonin and relaxation chemicals in your brain because you're releasing the tension through the sounds of
1: these words. There's like a Netflix series that I've been meaning to watch on like the history of curse words.
0: Words are cool. I'm a big fan.
1: Yeah. But I'm one of those people that I I'm pretty good at knowing when is appropriate to use them.
0: That is a thing that I am teaching as a parent. Yeah. Especially I mean, in virtual schooling when my kids go from playing video games with his friends, which cursing, to yeah. virtual class, not cursing.
1: It gets easier with practice. Oh, for sure. It, does. it gets yeah. easier
0: with time and knowledge and you know, understanding.
1: Yeah, the more you the more you curse, I feel like the easier it gets to know when is the more the right you
0: curse thing. the better you feel. So say <laughs> curse words at every mail. <laughs> say
1: your curse words
0: at every mail. <laughs> okay, so can I tell you something <laughs> that I have been trying not to mention because I feel so bad. Yeah. Where are you, Linus? You uh you 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 have a typo in your screen name on stereo. When I screen capped it, I noticed it's I'm am adult. <sighs>
1: So awesome! No, it's not awesome. It's excellent. What are you talking about? It's terrific. No, I'm editing it right now. No, don't. I'm, I no, I'm doing book. it. Okay, no. I'm doing it right now. Why you know. would
0: not you tell me? Because I thought if you had to change it, it would break it, and you would
1: lose all your followers. Oh, damn it! Can't change it? No, no. no no oh, oh
0: bugger i'm sorry
1: no <laughs> this is the worst thing to ever happen to me <laughs> sorry i should have just left
0: it be and let it be like why isn't it i don't know damn it
1: <laughs> oh god sorry fine <laughs> I'm going to live with that for the rest of my life.
0: And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. But we have so much fun stuff planned for what happens right now. So don't go anywhere. I've got audiobook samples and samples of our stereo broadcast. And I got so many cool things to share and I can't even talk about it. But thank you, Kate, for emailing us. If you would like to email us and tell us all the things, we love hearing from you. You can email us at sbjpodcast at gmail.com. We love giving book recommendations, and it's really fun to hear what you're doing when you listen. Now, as I mentioned, Amanda and I are also doing after parties, woohoo! live shows Tuesday evening, 7.30 p.m. Eastern on Stereo. Just go to Stereo.com slash smartpitches to get started. We get to bring you extra live content. We interact with you during the show and you know, provide extra mayhem and silliness. Stereo can be downloaded for free. Once you download the app, you get to create your avatar. And then during the live broadcasts, you get to submit audio messages to join in the conversation. So like I said, if you ever catch yourself trying to talk with us, now you can. Super awesome. Here is a sample of what that was like in our latest episode with, hello, one of my friends from college, Claudia. Claudia is back. Let's see what we got here. Sarah, I actually have a Pro tip for you, get a heated throw from Amazon. Um, They actually have them. They have like the little feet pockets in them. And since I have chronic pain, it's better than the heating pad because it can go over your shoulders. It can go over your legs. It's amazing. Um, But yes, heated throw. It's small enough to be used in the office and has a little bit less direct heat than, you know, (laughs) putting your butt on the heating pad all day, which sometimes can grow uncomfortable.
1: Okay, first through with a life hack right here. Okay,
0: so did you hear the instant pot in the I background? Did. I heard the <laughs>
1: screaming.
0: Instant pot would like to add to this conversation by saying hello. <laughs> Dinner's ready. Um, so I didn't know that there were heated heated throws
1: with foot pockets. Foot that's pockets. Amazing. Someone <gasps> needs to give that person the Nobel. Um, oh. Right? but So you have the heating pad. And what I just got today, because I'm spending a lot more time at my desk working from home, usually I miss going out to like a coffee shop and doing work. But I got a back massager, a heated back massager that straps to the back of my chair. And it's, as I like ripped it open out of the box and immediately started using it. It's so good.
0: So if you think that sounds like a whole lot of fun and uh, thank you, Claudia, for the heat and throw recommendation with pockets for your feet, holy cow. Join us Tuesdays at 7.30 p.m. Eastern stereo.com slash You can download the app and then record audio messages and listen to us live every Tuesday, 7.30 p.m. Eastern, stereo.com slash bitches. Now, as always, I will not let you down. I have a joke. But before I get to the joke... I have to tell you that there is a sample of Erica Ridley's new book, The Duke Heist, in audio right after I'm done talking. So if you would like to try out the audiobook, don't do anything, just relax and sit exactly where you are. You will get an audiobook sample of The Duke Heist by Erica Ridley, and if you buy the book, you can register your purchase at ericaridley.com and you get a free bonus novella. Woohoo! And now it is book it is it is yeah. It is. It is bad joke time. It is. I'm sorry. This is this is a really really bad one. I got many groans for this one, so of course I saved it. Are you ready? Okay, here's your bad joke. Did you know that in Germany, when someone is diagnosed with celiac disease, all the other celiacs gather around and chase them and try to hit them with bread to make them feel welcomed? It's called the gluten tog. <laughs> gluten tag. (laughs) Somebody out there speaks German and is now so mad at me. It's amazing. Gluten tag. (laughs) So terrible. I love it. Okay, back to serious Podcaster. I I am not one of those. Sorry. That's probably why you listen. (laughs) On behalf of everyone here, we wish you the very, very best of reading and a wonderful weekend. And don't forget, stay tuned for an audiobook sample of The Duke Heist by Erica Ridley coming up in like 12 whole seconds. Smart Podcast Trashy Books is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. You can find more outstanding podcasts to subscribe to at frolic.media slash podcasts. Now do not move. Stay exactly where you are. It's audiobook time. Chapter One
2: March 1817, London, England. Miss Chloe Winchester burst through the door of her family's sprawling residence in semi-fashionable Islington, followed closely behind by her sister Thomasina. Chloe's pulse raced with excitement. His arrogance, the Duke of Frosty Disapproval, didn't have a chance. Unable to keep her exuberance to herself, she yelled out, I have news about the painting! In a more respectable household, a young lady might expect censure for being so vulgar as to shout, even within the confines of one's own home. Such a young lady might also be rebuked for donning trousers and strolling about Westminster under an assumed identity. Chloe was grateful every single day not to have such limitations. Her roguish brother Graham appeared at the top of the marble stairs, Delight and disbelief writ across his handsome face. He was used to being the one with shocking news to share. Don't stand about. Come up to the planning parlour at once. I'll ring for tea. Exchanging grins, Chloe and Tommy dashed up the marble stairs, their grey cotton trousers allowing them to take the steps two at a time. In seconds, they joined Graham in the planning parlour the communal private sitting room the six siblings used for plotting their stratagems. Chloe and Tommy tossed their matching beaver hats onto the long walnut and burl table in the centre of the sound-dampened room. Tommy rubbed a hand over her short brown hair, causing it to spring up at all angles. Graham moved a pile of scandal sheets from the table to the map case to make room for refreshments. Tommy and Graham launched themselves into their favourite needlepoint armchairs, between two large windows outfitted with heavy calico curtains of ruby and gold. Chloe was far too excited to sit. Instead, she paced the black slate floor, which still contained traces of chalk from the last planning session. She paused before the unlit fireplace and lifted her chin. For as long as she could remember... Two paintings had always hung above the white marble mantel. One of them had been missing for the last eight months. But it wouldn't remain missing for much longer. The planning parlour feels doubly empty without our puck, Graham said gruffly. Not just the parlour, Tommy corrected. Our entire house. Our lives. No one said the words out loud, but they all knew it to be true. The house had belonged to Baron Vanderbeen, but the beloved painting belonged to all of them. Bean had rescued his motley brood of orphans over the course of a single summer. Six proud, frightened children between the ages of eight and eleven. Chloe, Tommy, Graham, Jacob, Marjorie and Elizabeth. Life had taught them to be mistrustful and careful. Coming together as a family had been the most pivotal moment in their lives. Chloe lifted her gaze to the portrait above the left side of the mantle. Bean's fatherly visage bore a grin that crinkled the edges of his bright blue eyes. It was not at all the thing to smile in one's portrait, which was probably why Bean had done so. Chloe was glad he did. His smile always made her feel loved. A maid entered the room and began arranging the tea. Chloe tugged her cravat free so as not to fill it with crumbs. Tommy wiggled with excitement. I can't wait to hear your plan, Chloe. Once Puck comes home, it will feel like having a part of being back, like being whole again. Chloe's heart pounded in agreement. All six of the siblings would do anything in their power to bring Puck and family home where it belonged. Before they'd found each other, most of the siblings had never had anyone they could rely on or possessions to call their own. They'd learned the hard way not to develop emotional attachments to people or things. Bean had offered permanence, a place to belong, a home. He told them they were the children he'd always wanted but never had, From the moment each had arrived on the doorstep, they'd felt loved and cherished in a way they had never known. The oil painting was their first purchase as a family, their first decision as a family. For most of them, it was the first time their voices mattered. The artist's uncommon skill wasn't why they'd chosen the unusual painting. It was the subject. A forest scene. Featuring Robin Goodfellow, the mischievous demon fairy, sometimes known in folk tales as Puck, and six fellow sprites of all sizes and hues, dancing about a fire with absolute freedom and joy. It was the visual representation of what they'd found in each other. Happiness. Unconditional love. The ability to be oneself and to be bigger than oneself. To be a team and a family. That was the most magical part of all. That painting was their soul on canvas. To the Winchesters, the painting was a family portrait, and their most cherished possession. It belonged to all of them. It was all of them. Once Puck comes home, we can get rid of that cherub. All three gazes swung to the fireplace, an angel shaped vase stood on the mantel, right beneath the faded rectangle where Puck and family should have been. A blank spot that matched the empty space in their lives where Bean used to be. Chloe swallowed hard at the injustice. Nineteen years earlier, the prior, Duke of Faircliff, had sold them the painting to pay one of his many gaming debts. Then, eight months ago, when he suddenly wanted it back, The family refused. Instead of honouring the original transaction, the Duke stole the painting and left an ugly vase behind in its stead, as though that could possibly make up for their loss. Neither they nor the old Duke anticipated a carriage accident interrupting his journey home or that he'd succumb to his injuries. When Bean visited the heir to politely request the return of their painting, the newly crowned Duke of Faircliff refused to see him. Rebuff, Baron Vanderbean, Chloe's blood boiled. But that was hardly the first of the new duke's endless slights and rejections. He'd always been too lofty and self-important to notice anyone of lesser rank, no matter the justification. Later, when Bean caught smallpox, He refused to allow the children into his sick room lest he expose them to the disease. They threw themselves into retrieving the painting and cursed Faircliffe when Bean slowly slipped away, without the safe return of their heirloom. Then or now, the Winchester family couldn't command a single second of the new duke's time. She ground her teeth. According to the society papers, The Winchester children were nothing more than a dead baron's charity orphans. Someone you might toss a coin to out of pity, but never deign to speak to on purpose. She didn't care what Faircliff thought of her. Chloe was glad to be a Winchester. She wouldn't trade a single moment for the boring, buttoned-up life of the Beaumont. Chloe was used to being invisible. It was her greatest talent and often the reason for the success of their clandestine missions. It had begun as a game. When the six siblings were children, Bean taught them to play three impossible things, to give them skills and confidence. They gathered information, breached barriers, and performed feats of daring. Later, their team became the specialists to turn to when the justice system failed those in need. The Winchesters snuck food and medicine into prisons, exposed workhouses and orphanages with draconian practices, tracked down libertines who despoiled for sport, rescued women and children from abusers, delivered aid and supplies to those who needed it most. Bean had taught them nothing was impossible. Everyone deserved their best life. Their missions gave them purpose and adventure. Chloe loved slipping about unseen, doing good works beneath people's noses. But being overlooked on purpose was one thing. Being dismissed out of cruelty was far worse. We no longer have to beg, Chloe announced. We can steal it back from Faircliff, just as his father did to us. Graham added another tea cake to his plate. How will we infiltrate the Duke's terraced fortress? That townhouse is as tightly locked down as his loftiness himself. Do we even know where he's keeping the painting? Chloe grinned at him. We don't have to. I know where it's going to be. He set down his cake. Where? How? She leaned back. I sometimes watch parliamentary proceedings from the peephole in the attic. Sometimes. Graham rolled his eyes. One of you missed one. And what does your obsession with politics have to do with getting Puck back? Well, if you would let me finish. Chloe pilfered her brother's tea cake and took a bite from the corner, chewing with exaggerated slowness before swallowing. As I was saying, today Tommy disguised us as journalists and we sneaked into the strangers' gallery, where we sat behind Mr York. Wait. Graham interrupted, his brown eyes gleaming. Mr York, the MP whose daughter is rumoured to have caught the Duke of Faircliffe's eye. It's more than a rumour, Chloe said sourly. We overheard Faircliffe say he intends to give Puck and family to Mr York's daughter, Philippa, as a courting gift. Graham's face purpled. Give away our painting. That knave, it's not his to give. That's the bad news, Chloe agreed. She affected an innocent expression. The good news is that my Jane Brown alias has an invitation to Miss York's weekly ladies' reading circle. I met her when I was on that mission at the dreadful school for girls. Philippa was visiting with a charity group and... You know what? It doesn't matter. The important part is I have access to the home where the painting will be. It's our chance. Her brother pinned her with his too perceptive gaze. You accidentally bumped into the Duke of Faircliffe's future intended and now have a standing invitation into her household. That's a bit of good fortune. Er, uh, yes. Chloe became suddenly enthralled by her tea. A very lucky, completely random coincidence. It was definitely not because she read the same gossip columns as her brother and wanted to see for herself what kind of woman attracted the Duke of Faircliffe's attention. Chloe had passed by him any number of times, not that he noticed. He didn't even acknowledge her when she'd placed herself in his direct path to demand the return of her family portrait. Barely a syllable had escaped her lips before he strode right past her towards something or someone he actually cared about. Blaggard. Now that we know when and where to act, we can play the game and get the painting. Chloe counted the impossible things on her fingers. First, ingratiate myself with the reading circle. Achieved. Second, retrieve Puck and family once Faircliffe delivers it. Third, replace it with a forgery so no one suspects a thing. It all happens on Thursday. Graham frowned. Why would Faircliff wish to interrupt a reading circle? He doesn't know he's going to, Chloe smirked. The Yorks are surprisingly crafty. Even a stiff, scowling duke like Faircliffe is a catch worth bragging about, Tommy explained. Mrs York will want witnesses. We don't want witnesses, Graham pointed out. Wouldn't it be safer to bump into Faircliff on the street and accidentally swap his rolled canvas for hours. It would indeed, Chloe agreed, if Faircliff happened to stroll through Grosvenor Square with a rolled up canvas, but the painting is framed and the Duke will arrive in a carriage where the York butler will be watching. Graham lifted his tea. There aren't a lighter set of fingers in all of London, so I've no doubt you can nick the canvas and we will ask Marjorie to create the forgery. All six Winchester siblings were talented in their own ways. Marjorie was an extraordinary painter who could replicate any artwork to match the original. Chloe smiled. Marjorie finished ages ago. I just needed an opportunity to exchange canvases and some way to smuggle it out without anyone noticing. She swapped Graham's spoon with Tommy's fork as she thought. Coins and keys were easy objects to palm, but a rolled up canvas was much too big. Could you strap a tube to your leg? Tommy asked. Perhaps if I walked very carefully, Chloe mused, then shook her head. I would have to lift up my skirts to strap on the tube, and being caught like that would be worse. What I need is... Kittens! Their rugged elder brother Jacob strolled into the planning parlour with a lopsided basket in his strong arms. Most ladies love kittens almost as much as a good book. If you were showing off a new pet. Chloe tensed. Although hints of fur clung to Jacob's ripped and patched waistcoat, she'd learned to be wary. The last time her brother had entered a room with a basket, he was trying his hand at snake charming if she hadn't been wearing her sturdiest boots. Do you really have a kitten in there? Ferrets, he admitted, his dark brown eyes sparkling. But I have the perfect solution out in the barn. Tiglet is the best of all the messenger kittens. Messenger? Kittens? She echoed faintly. Like pigeons, but terrestrial, Jacob explained earnestly. More fur, less filth the perfect cover. He can find his way home from anywhere. He'll be a splendid distraction, because where there's chaos, there's opportunity, Tommy finished, eyes gleaming. Chloe held up a finger. First rule of three impossible things, no plan without a contingency. Graham brightened. May I suggest? Your acrobatic skills are awe-inspiring, brother but unnecessary in this instance. Graham's shoulders caved. When will it be my turn? Whilst I don't anticipate the need for trick riding on the back of a racing stallion, Chloe assured him, a driver would not be amiss, just in case I must flee in too much haste to flag down a hackney. No hack required, Graham straightened. We can't risk one of our carriages being recognised so I'll drive a substitute that cannot be traced to the family. Tommy cocked her head. If there is a queue of carriages awaiting their literary-minded mistresses, how will Chloe know which coach is the right one? Mine will have red curtains and a conspicuously displayed glove for good measure. Graham's eyes lit up. Better yet, I will not only be the first carriage you come to, I'll be in the coachman's perch. You shan't miss me. No plan without a contingency. Jacob's curly black hair dipped as he peeked into the basket of ferrets. What if the York staff insist you move the carriage? Tommy clapped her hands. Elizabeth will distract them. When Elizabeth threw her voice, no one could tell where it was coming from. Their sister could emulate an entire crowd of distractions. She was also handy with a sword stick. Either skill would do the trick. Graham turned to Chloe, his eyes serious. If we get separated for any reason, go somewhere safe. I'll find you. She grinned back at him, exhilarated by the upcoming adventure. Huck was finally coming home. The reading circle will have a wonderful afternoon. Other than a wee interlude with Tiglet, the most memorable event will be Miss York charming the Duke of Haughtiness. Graham lifted a broadsheet. Their alliance will be the talk of the scandal columns. No one will remember anything else. Which is too bad, because I rather enjoy their wild conjecture about us. One of my favourite columns claims... Such a large, isolated house could contain dozens of them. Chloe wrinkled her nose. Those gossips make us sound like bats. I like bats. Jacob scratched beneath the chin of one of the ferrets. Bats are fascinating. They have navels like humans and clean themselves like cats. I have 13 of them out in the barn. Please keep them there, Tommy murmured or give them to his iciness, Chloe suggested. Faircliffe deserves as much. Graham moved the broadsheets in search of his spoon. No doubt the Duke's interest in Philippa York is monetary. Although she has no title, she does possess the largest dowry on the marriage mart. I've been keeping a tally. Poor Philippa. Tommy's mouth tightened. She deserves better. Chloe agreed. Faircliffe single-handedly lowered the temperature in every room he entered. The man was all sharp cheekbones and cutting remarks. "That is to everyone but her." She was invisible when right in front of him, even when she was trying to be seen. Graham made a face. "Can you imagine being wed to that block of ice?" Chloe pushed her teacup away. I cannot fathom a worse fate. Chapter Two Lawrence Gosling, 8th Duke of Faircliffe, was on the verge of achieving what had once seemed impossible, replenishing the dukedom's empty coffers and restoring its tattered reputation. His father had lived a charmed life on credit he had been unable to repay, and now, with the failure of their country estate's crops, the situation was becoming dire. If Lawrence did not secure a bride with a significant dowry before the end of the season, he would have to send the last of his loyal servants to the streets. He would not repay them so shabbily. Lawrence leaned forward in his rented coach and opened the curtain to be able to address his driver. As with all of his father's grievous missteps, each of Lawrence's attempts to restore respect and prosperity had been won at great personal cost. The sacrifice was worth it. Lawrence's reputation was spotless, his performance in Parliament impeccable. This season, marriage-minded mamas would have him at the top of their lists. For as long as Lawrence lived, the Gosling name and Faircliff title would never again be spoken with derision. No heir of his would be dismissed, forced to shoulder ridicule and isolation. Of course, that was because no one realized his shiny reputation hid a very empty pocketbook. The dukedom didn't need a dowry. The dukedom needed the dowry to end all dowries. A sum so staggering, Lawrence could restore the half-abandoned entailed country estate repay the last of his father's debts and have a respectable chunk left over to invest in a stable future. The dukedom needed Miss Philippa York. The terrace house at the corner, Lawrence instructed the driver, the one with yellow rose bushes. As you please, Your Grace. Using a coach to travel from one end of Grosvenor Square to the other was a shameless display of pretension and excess and the reason Miss York's parents looked favorably on a courtship between Lawrence and their daughter. Although he'd sold his last remaining carriage that morning, right down to his prized greys, Lawrence had rented this hack to keep up appearances. Mr. York was one of the most powerful MPs in the House of Commons. Mrs. York was bosom friends with a patroness of Olmax. They had wealth, status, Everything they could ever want, except a title. After the wedding, the Yorks' daughter would be a duchess, their grandson a future duke. To them, such a jaw-dropping coup would be more than worth any dowry required. For him, it meant a new leaf. The Earl of Sotheby was seeking partners for an investment opportunity with very attractive interest rates, if, Lawrence came up with his portion before the Earl quit London at the end of the season. It was not a flashy wager, like the sort his father had made at his gentlemen's clubs, but the steady interest and future profit would provide a strong foundation for years to come. To Lawrence, marriage to respectable Miss York meant far more than financial stability. His children could be children without fear of mockery or poverty. It would give his sons and daughters the chance, no, the right to be happy. Everyone deserved as much, including his new bride. Lawrence could not afford to woo Miss York for an entire season, but he could give her a week or two to get to know him before the betrothal. He reached for the framed canvas on the seat opposite. Once the traffic clears, I'll alight at the last house. I shan't be more than half an hour. But the carriages crowding the Yorks' side of the square did not move. The queue appeared to be idly awaiting passengers. One of the Yorks' neighbors must be hosting a tea. He grimaced. Lawrence hated tea. He would rather drink water from the Thames. Stop here, he reached for the door. Find your way to the front of the queue so I know where to find you when I return. The driver nodded and allowed the curtain to fall closed. Despite residing on opposite sides of Grosvenor Square, this was Lawrence's first call at the York residence. The warm red brick and painted white columns of the impeccable terrace house were bright and clean. Every window glistened in the sunlight, reflecting the azure spring sky. Or the trim green grass in the square. Jaw clenched, he strode down the pavement toward their front walk as elegantly as one could with a heavy brown paper wrapped framed painting clutched beneath one's arm. Lawrence could have brought his last remaining footman along to carry the painting, but he hoped a show of personal effort would add an extra touch of romance to his unusual gift. It was not what he would have picked, but the important thing was giving his future betrothed something she liked. The finality of marriage prickled his skin with equal parts nervousness and excitement. A fortnight from now, when the contract was signed, he and Miss York would be saddled with each other. His palms felt clammy. Was it foolish to hope their union might be a pleasant one? He drew himself taller. As with all duties, One did as one must. The door was answered as soon as he touched the knocker. Lawrence presented his card at once. Your Grace, said the butler. Do come in. Shall I ring for someone to take your package? I'll deliver it. Lawrence stepped over the threshold to wait for his hosts. He and Mr. York had met in the House of Commons and enjoyed spirited debates for most of a decade. Last year... After the premature death of Lawrence's father, he had moved from the House of Commons to the House of Lords. A partnership with Mr. York would ensure vital allies across the two houses. All he had to do was remain sparklingly unobjectionable until the bans were read. Once Miss York married him, her dowry would save the dukedom and secure a better future for his family and his tenants. The plan had to work. It was Lawrence's only shot. Mrs. York bounded up to him, her hands clasped to her chest as if physically restraining a squeal of excitement. Your grace, such a pleasure, I do say. The unmistakable sound of female voices trickled from an open door halfway down the corridor straight ahead. Lawrence's skin went cold. This was supposed to be a private meeting. He hated surprises and was inept at impromptu conversations. He excelled in Parliament because he prepared his speeches in advance, just as he had done for today's visit with Miss York and her parents. Interacting with an unexpected crowd would ensure he made a hash out of his well-rehearsed lines. He stepped no farther. Did I mistake the date? he inquired carefully. No, no, right on time as always, Mr. York strode up to join his wife. You're a man who cleaves to duty a fine trait, I dare say. Very little in common with your father. Uh, Thank you. I should hope I'm nothing like him. Quite right, quite right. Your parliamentary speeches could rival Fox and Pitt. Your father, on the other hand, rarely left his club or his cups. Indeed, there are many who say... Mr. York coughed and gave Lawrence a jovial clap on the shoulder. Tis no time for gossip, is it, my boy?" Lawrence affected an affable smile. At least, he hoped that was what his face was doing. He was conscious every day that the gosling name teetered on the edge of respectability. Mr. York's unfinished intimation had been clear. There were still those who said Faircliffe Dukes were a blight on society. Duke or not, nothing was certain until the contract was signed. It is our honor, your grace, Mrs. York gushed as she fluttered her hands in excitement and impatience. Is that the special gift for Philippa? Come, you must present it to her at once. I admit I can't fathom what beauty she sees in that painting, Mr. York murmured. Lawrence held the frame a little harder. Dancing hobgoblins were an unusual subject. He did not understand why anyone would want it. What if, upon second inspection, the young lady realized her error in having expressed admiration for such questionable art, and laughed in his face when he presented it as a gift? Being able to give an item he already possessed had seemed like serendipity. Now he feared the omen might not be positive. His veins hummed with panic. It sounds as though Miss York is entertaining guests. He gripped the frame. I should return when I'm not interrupting. Stop the nonsense Mrs. York looped her hand about the crook of Lawrence's elbow, and all but dragged him down the corridor. It's just a few of her blue stocking friends. I'm certain they'll all find it amusing to see what you've brought Philippa. Yes, exactly what he was afraid of but there was no backing out now. His father's word wasn't worth the breath it floated on, but Lawrence had kept every vow for two and thirty years. Miss York liked the painting. He'd promised to give it to her. On this day, at this time. Nowhere to go but forward. Besides, a few blue stockings was hardly a lion's den. Was it? Philippa, my dear, look who's arrived, Mrs. York sang out as they entered a grand parlour. The room was enormous, with seats for over two dozen guests and every chair was full. Lawrence could feel the weight of too many gazes landing on him at once. Half of them he did not recognise. Perhaps those were the blue stockings. But the other half were familiar faces from polite society. He swallowed hard. He didn't merely need to impress Miss York and her parents. He needed to charm an entire room. If only influencing a parlour full of women were as easy as debating customs and excise reform at Westminster with a few hundred of his peers, quoting the latest committee findings, was unlikely to gain him any points here. He wouldn't acknowledge any of them, Lawrence decided. The situation was too fraught, and the chance for error too high. Missteps, like smiling at or snubbing the wrong young lady. He would place all of his attention on Miss York. That could be interpreted as romantic, could it not? Here he was with a courting gift, a knight bearing a tapestry of dancing demons for his fair maiden. Miss York, for her part, was enshrouded in her usual yards of voluminous lace. Only her pink cheeks and dimpled hands protruded from the delicate froth, lending her the appearance of a life-sized doll. Her eternally blank expression made the resemblance uncanny. Miss York, Lawrence began, then paused. He could not kiss her hand with the painting in his arms, and setting it on the ground risked damage. Bowing would be just as unwieldy. He would have to skip the niceties and rush straight to the romance. I've brought you a humble token of my admiration. Eh, oh, gasped one of her friends. What could it be? A painting my mother informed him I might enjoy, Miss York gestured toward a blank spot on the wall. She intends to put it there. So, she was not impressed with his courtship gift. Lawrence forced himself to smile anyway. Miss York didn't smile back. The rest of the room was alive with whispers. Is it a love match? Why else would he wed beneath him? My father is a marquis. What? Did you think he was bringing the gift to you? Do you think she loves him? Who can ever tell what she's thinking? I cannot wait to see the artwork he brought her. The back of Lawrence's neck flushed with heat. Yes. Miss York was marrying him for his title. Yes, he needed her dowry. But that didn't have to be all they shared. Even a marriage of convenience could work with a modicum of effort. But first, he had to get rid of this bloody painting. Could someone ring for a pair of shears? He asked politely. Here, Mrs. York trilled. Two wigged footmen, identical in height and elegant livery glided into the room and relieved Lawrence of the canvas. Now was his chance to kiss Miss York's hand. Before he could do so, a maid handed her a sharp pair of metal shears. Miss York rose to her feet in a rustle of lace. A wave of whispers once again rushed through the parlour. Lawrence risked a subtle glance over his shoulder. Every gaze was transfixed on Miss York. Except for one. One woman's dark brown eyes arrested him. She did not seem curious about the gift. Her disconcertingly intense expression was shrewd, as if she could see through the brown paper package, see through his meticulously tailored layers of fashionable apparel, see through him to the nervousness and desperation beneath. But she did not look away. Her gaze only sharpened, as if she had stripped him bare and still wanted more. His throat grew dry. He tried to swallow. An odd prickling sensation travelled up his spine as though the tips of her fingers had brushed against his skin. He quickly turned back to Miss York. The delivery of the gift had stretched on long enough. If she didn't cut through the paper soon, Lawrence would rip it apart with his bare hands, make his bow and escape to his waiting carriage before he was forced to follow this performance with tea and small talk. If you'd be so kind, he murmured. Miss York sliced through the brown paper as though she had little interest in safekeeping the art beneath. The paper fell away. The painting was exposed. A gasp rippled through the crowd, whether at the romance of the gesture or because the subject featured a family of mischievous sprites, Lawrence could not say. "Thank you," Miss York said. "You are most kind." "Was she smitten?" "Bored?" "She did not appear to be upset or in any danger of swooning." He gave a gift. "She received the gift." "Fun!" The back of his neck heated anew. He appreciated her extreme lack of drama, Lawrence told himself. After her dowry, her predictability was his favorite trait. A woman like Miss York would never muddy the Faircliff title with scandal. She was exactly what he needed. No scrapes, no surprises. Mrs. York burst into loud applause. Huzzah! Everyone in the room followed suit. Everyone, that was except Miss York and the oddly intense young woman with the mocking half-smile. Her gaze continued to track him, as though she could hear each overloud heartbeat and sense each shallow breath from across the room. He did not like the sensation at all. Despite the room full of strangers, her regard felt strangely intimate and far too perceptive. As soon as the painting is hung, Mrs. York chirped, we shall all remove to the dining room for a nice leisurely tea. Good God, anything but that. Besides his distaste for tea, Lawrence could not court anyone properly while dodging the unsettling gaze of the woman with the pretty brown eyes. Even now he was thinking of her instead of concentrating on Miss York. It would not do. Once the painting was hung, Lawrence would bolt out the door and into the sanctity of his carriage. His driver had better be ready to fly. Chapter 3 Chloe folded her hands in her lap and did her best not to glare a hole right through the handsome, haughty Duke of Faircliffe. All of this would have been much easier if Faircliff would simply return the painting. But addressing his arrogance directly did not work. Chloe and her siblings had pleaded for months in countless letters sent to his home and dozens of humiliating attempts in person. His infuriating loftiness was far too superior to see reason, or commoners like the Winchester siblings. His frigid blue gaze looked right at Chloe and slid away just as quickly, having glimpsed nothing to attract his interest. How many times had she and Faircliff crossed paths? Hyde Park, Berkeley Square, Westminster. Every disdainful glance in her direction was as indifferent as the last. She lifted her chin. Bean had taught her that. To the right person, she would be visible and memorable. Faircliffe was clearly the wrong person. Not that she wanted him to notice her, Chloe reminded herself the continued success of Jane Brown hinged on her uncanny ability to be wholly unremarkable under any circumstances. She gripped the soft muslin of her skirt. Tommy might be an unparalleled genius with disguises, but Chloe needn't do anything at all to blend in and be forgettable. She possessed one of those faces that was at once familiar yet too ordinary to pick out from a crowd. She was neither tall nor short, ugly nor pretty. Nothing about her stood out. Her skin wasn't palest alabaster like Philippa York's or golden bronze like her brother Graham's. She was not thin and willowy like Tommy or pleasingly plump like Elizabeth. Her limp brown hair wasn't spun flax like Marjorie's or blessed with glossy black curls like Jacob's. Chloe was neutral and dull, with nary even a freckle to add a spot of interest. She was just... there, like a dust mote in a shaft of light. Her perpetual insignificance had helped her through scrape after scrape. Chloe would never admit how much she wished... Just once to see a flicker of recognition reflected back at her. Not that her expectations of Faircliff were high. What type of conceited, cold-hearted knave blithely gave away a painting he did not own as a cold-shape gift? A villain like that could not be trusted or reasoned with. He'd had his chance to deal honourably. Chloe wouldn't beg him for the painting, even if she could. At this point, the duplicitous, arrogant blackguard deserved to have it whisked out of his hands. She forced her tense fingers to unclench and folded them in her lap. Soon. Thank you ever so much for your charming gift, Mrs. York cooed loud enough for the entire party to hear, and likely the neighbours as well. Philippa is overjoyed. Philippa did not appear to be overjoyed, or even middling-level joyful. She bore the same, I am here because I must be expression she wore at every social function, save the brief occasions when her mother left her side and the reading circle could actually talk about books. Chloe imagined her far more interested in the Duke's famed library than in the man himself. Not that Faircliffe seemed particularly infatuated a man in love would have dreamed up a gift better suited to his bride. My gratitude, Philippa murmured. The Duke looked self-congratulatory. My pleasure. Chloe glared at him on behalf of women everywhere who longed for more than token gestures of false affection. But Faircliffe's kind didn't waste time on matters of the heart. Lords and ladies, or those who aspired to become them, Selected their unions with cold practicality. Their minds were muddied not with emotion, but with visions of titles and dowries and estates and social connections. Chloe was delighted not to belong to a world like that. Mrs. York clapped her hands together.
1: And now, a celebratory
2: tea. The Duke's face displayed a comical look of alarm. I don't think- you must join us, Mrs. York's hands flapped like a frightened bird's. The ladies were about to have oatcakes and cucumber sandwiches. We were about to discuss epistolary structure in 18th century French novels, Philippa murmured. I never meant to interrupt, Faircliffe said with haste. I, I mustn't stay. And in fact, nonsense, come, come, all of you, Mrs. York waved her arms about the room driving her guests into the dining room like a shepherd herding sheep. Chloe and Faircliff were both caught in the flow. Once they passed through the doorway, however, Chloe stepped to one side. She could not take a seat at the table or she would be stuck there for the next hour. While everyone else was occupied, this was her chance to liberate her beloved Puck. But first, she needed an excuse to disappear an adorable furry reason. She released Tiglet from the large wicker basket. The calico kitten darted between boots and beneath petticoats with a formidable (whistles) Mrs. York gave a dramatic shriek in response. Tiglet scaled several curtains in search of an open window before darting out of the dining room and flying off down the corridor as though his tail were afire. Chloe gasped as if shocked that her homing kitten was attempting to dash home. How embarrassing. I'll run and find the naughty little scamp at once. Please don't wait for me. Philippa glanced up from her place at the table. I could help. Sit down, her mother hissed. The duke is here. Philippa sighed. We could at least ring for a maid or a footman. It's really no trouble, Chloe assured her. Please serve the tea. With a meaningful glance to Mrs. York, Chloe made several unsubtle tilts of her head toward the Duke of Faircliff, who was tarrying noticeably, as if reluctant to take his place at the table. Oh, Mrs. York said loudly, you're absolutely right. Go on, dear, take your time. Over here, your grace, come and sit by Philippa. We've saved you the best seat. Have you met the others? Philippa gestured at each young lady as she took a chair at the table. To my left is... Chloe slipped from the room at the sound of Mrs. York chastising her daughter for performing introductions out of the order of precedence. Chloe could be gone an hour before anyone would notice. She wouldn't need but five minutes. With her basket hanging from her arm, she ducked into the parlour and closed the door behind her. A broken hairpin in the keyhole would not only prevent anyone from entering behind her, but would also make it obvious a crime was underway. She would simply work fast. There was no sense looking for the kitten. Strands of calico fur and unfortunate paw prints on a velvet curtain indicated Tiglet had already found an open window and was well on his way home. Chloe hurried to lift her family painting from the wall and carried it behind a chinoiserie folding screen in the corner. Cutting the canvas free was not an option. The replacement must look identical to the original, and besides, she would never damage an object that meant this much. Quickly, she lay the frame face down and removed her tools from the basket. Marjorie had drilled Chloe on mounting and unmounting canvases until her fingers were calloused and she could perform the manoeuvre in her sleep. Up came the grips, off came the backing. Out came Puck and family. She rolled it into a scroll the size of her forearm and tucked it into the basket before stretching the forgery over the wooden frame. This was the tricky part. There was no way to attach the painting without hammering the grips in place. She must do so in silence. If she placed only one grip on each side and lined each one perfectly with the holes it had come from, there! She hurriedly returned it to the wall. As long as it stayed there, no one would notice the imperfect craftsmanship. And if one day someone did notice, well, that was none of Chloe's concern. Faircliff would be the one who had to explain the shoddy frame. She did not feel sorry for him at all. This was not his painting to give away. For that alone she could never forgive him. She ran to open the parlour door before anyone noticed it had been shut and strode past the dining room to the front door without taking her leave from the guests. By now, Faircliff and Philippa were exchanging romantic words with all of the other ladies hanging on every utterance. Would anyone realise she had failed to return? Doubtful. If anything, the ladies would assume Jane Brown had slunk off in mortification. Her throat prickled. She would never know what the other ladies thought of the current novel. But Chloe didn't need reading circles. She was a Winchester. They had each other, which was more than enough. Keeping her face down, she headed along the front walk toward the first carriage in the queue. Only when she glimpsed red curtains and a pair of leather gloves on the box did she lift her head toward the driver's perch. It was empty. Her lungs caught. Where was Graham? Distant shouts reached her ears and her tight muscles relaxed. Something unexpected must have occurred, and her siblings' planned distraction was in progress. This was her cue to flee. Chloe pushed the basket onto the perch, unhooked the carriage from its post, and leapt onto the coachman's seat. Female drivers weren't unheard of, But all the same, she was glad she never went outside without garbing herself in the plainest, dullest, dowdiest clothing in her wardrobe. No one who glanced her way would bother looking for long. She set the horses on a swift path out of Mayfair. Only when Grosvenor Square was no longer visible behind her did she allow herself a small smile of victory. Their cherished family portrait was coming home. Once she walked in that door with their painting held high, did we escape? Came a low, velvet voice from within the carriage. Chloe's skin went cold. Who was that? Graham wouldn't be hiding in the back of the carriage. A stranger was in the coach. She twisted about and wrenched the privacy curtain to one side. A handsome face with soft brown hair and sculpted cheekbones stared back at her, glacial blue eyes wide with surprise. Faircliff she blurted in disbelief. Miss, uh, you, he spluttered when he found his voice. What the devil are you doing driving my carriage?